If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Our guest today is Sheila Ramsey. Sheila's a Connemara breeder and she's been doing some research into hoof wool separation disease. It's not so much the hoof wool separation disease, although we'll talk about that. It's also the way that she's raised money for research into the hoof wool separation disease that we're going to talk about. How are you today, Sheila? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. Now, Sheila, we normally start off with a favourite quote. So have you got one for us? I've heard you've got a beauty. Yes, I've got one. I've never been able to find out where it originated from, but the quote is, entrenched belief is never altered by the facts. Now, as a scientist, that's got to be pretty hard, you know, because the scientist is going to go out there and do the research, produce the facts, and even with the facts in front of someone, you're saying that someone's still going to say, well, I've got an entrenched belief that I can't believe the facts. Is that right or have I got that wrong? No, that, that's correct. And they don't actually say they've got an entrenched belief because they don't realise that it is an entrenched belief. Mm-hmm. But you get the situation with the hoof wall where when I was speaking in Ireland and these people would be saying, I've been breeding horses for 50 years and I've never seen it, right? Mm-hmm. So my answer to that is, Just because you haven't seen the aurora australis, does that mean it doesn't exist? Mm. And that puts people on the back foot because there are a lot of things out there that we personally have never seen, Yes, but we know they exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is where this whole concept of entrenched belief, if people have got a, a tunnel vision about something, it doesn't matter what you put in front of them, they're not gonna move. Mm, no, I understand that. I did understand it the right way in the first place, so that was good. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Now, Sheila, tell us about how you started with horses and what your first memories were. I was a pony-mad kid living in Christchurch, which is the biggest city in South Island, and this was in the 60s, and up the road from where I lived, there was still a stables, and I used to go and sit outside the gate after school on the off chance that I might see a horse. Yep. And eventually the lady who owned the place took pity on me. I mean, I found out later she checked up with my mother that it was all right, but she would invite me in and I basically became a little pony slave, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes, quite a lot. Yeah, I know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the interesting thing is that she ended up running a, um, a de facto riding school because, mm-hmm. you know, there was a few other kids around. There was me and one other little pony slave. We were the only ones that actually kept on with horses as we grew up because all the other ones whose parents paid for them to go have riding lessons and they didn't do the pony slave work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, they just, once their hormones took off, they threw the ponies out the window. Whereas me and my mate, who happened to be a guy actually, or a boy, um, we kept going. 
Do you think it's because you had a lot more actual, even though even though you were doing maybe the grunt work, that you had far more time with the horses than someone who maybe just came in once a week for a lesson? I think we were hungrier. Mm. And this is what I see now with, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but I see it now. A lot of the kids are not riding because they're hungry for it. It's because their parents are. Mm. Mm. It's a totally different culture, you know I mean? If I saw a pony in a paddock when I was out in the car with my mother, it was all, wow, you know, and and I knew where they all were and, yeah, it, it's a totally different culture. As I said, we were hungry. We had to work to get what we what the others took for granted. So being that pony-mad kid, when did you decide to actually have a career with horses or have horses within your career? Uh, well, I basically just fell into it. Mm-hmm. You got to put things in context of of the time growing up. I mean, no idea what it was like in other countries, but the late 60s, early 70s, if you were a girl, you had the option of going and doing office work, teaching or nursing. And I wanted to be a farmer. (laughs) And and it didn't go down very well in a central city school where I was the only girl in the school that was into horses, you know. So I just – fell into it. Yeah. And I worked on thoroughbred stud. I worked in racing, side the thoroughbred racing. I switched codes and jumped into standard breeds for a while. And it was fine while I was doing it, but I was also extremely aware of the fact that it was an industry which was effectively running on slave labour, which was pony-mad girls. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I used to get 30 bucks a week, starting at 5.30 in the morning and going through 30 bucks a week and and my board. Mm. We were crazy. We were totally crazy, the whole lot of us. But anyway, that's beside the point. (laughs) So, yes, and then once I got out of the racing industry, I actually met my husband and we got married and I had ponies and just sort of went on from there. Yeah, and then... When I was um, in my 40s, a change of circumstances for both of us, mm-hmm. I decided that it was my time to do my thing and I wanted to go to uni. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And when you're at uni, did you focus on horse subjects and horse things? How did that work out? No, no. When I went to uni in, in mid-90s, I went to do the diploma in vet nursing at the Massey Vet School mm-hmm. because I'd always had a bent that way and I am a production animal person rather than cats and dogs and when I um, graduated with that I ended up being employed at Massey in different research areas so I got this uh, how would you put it I've always wanted to know stuff and suddenly I was put into a situation where my job was to find out stuff and I was actually working in parasitology so that's my little side thingy is worms right and yeah it just sort of went on from there and then in 2009 I decided after a couple of trips overseas I decided that I wanted to upskill my diploma to a degree so I went back to Massey and did the degree of Bachelor in Veterinary Technology and it's from that that all of the hoof wall research came out of because in the third year there is a paper called Integrative Studies, where you have to actually design a research project. 
So I was already interested in the hoofall thing because of what had been happening during the, the noughties with people importing ponies to New Zealand and their, and their feet falling to bits. And I had imported a couple of Connemaras in the mid-noughties and I was trying to find semen around the world to bring into New Zealand. And I started getting these emails from people saying, well, be careful of this stallion and that stallion because they've got these funny, they've been throwing funny feet. And, and it all started from there. And because I'm a bit of a, a computer geek, I'd started building a, a database. And this was before any of the online databases were available. So I had built one specifically for the Connemaras. And when... Um, some people from Canada contacted me. They sent me some names and a bit of breeding, and I put it into my database because we were trying to find a common ancestor that might be causing these feet issues. And it took about 40 minutes for the computer to churn it through and pop out a name. Mm. Uh, and it sort of went from there. So I, I was playing around with this. And then in the third year of my degree, I actually had to design the a research project. So I submitted the hoof wall to the supervisors and they said, yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. And it's just weird how things happen because as part of the assignment, I actually had to even cost everything out. So I emailed the genetics lab at UC Davis and said, you know, if I was doing this project, what would it cost me? And uh, Dr. Finnow, she was really great. She emailed me back. And first of all, she said, well, is it for real? I said, well, yes, it is, but. but. And uh, so she did a mock invoice for me to put into my assignment and all the rest of it. And how much was the mock invoice for? $250,000 US. <laughs> okay. Right. So it wasn't going to happen, right? But along with that, she said, well, if you've got any samples of ponies, you know, you can get blood samples to us from these affected ponies and their parents, we'll extract the DNA and store it for you for nothing. Okay. It was a good offer. It was great. So the people who were affected in the US and Canada, because it was easy for them to send two tubes of blood, mm. they sent it in to... Um, Dr. Finnow, and we just sat on it, and I write my assignment, and it's all, you know, cool bananas. And then, in the meantime, a whole heap of us, we'd been kicked off one of the forums on social media because we kept mentioning this hoof issue, you see, and we were told to either um, put up or shut up, and, and they were going, we got banned, right, because we wouldn't shut up about it, which was quite funny. But enough of word had gotten out that two people had got in contact with us because they had bred two foals by the same stallion which was imported from Ireland. This is in the US, right? Mm -hmm. That stallion had been imported from Ireland. They had put their mares in fold to him using AI, so we're getting mega buckies, you know? Yep. And both of them popped out with these really weird feet. And both of them live within two and a half hours driving time of UC Davis. <laughs> it was like dominoes going ping, 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 right? So they took them up to Davis, where the head of the <coughs> Centre for Equine Research was there and Dr. Carrie Finnow was there. And their comments were that they had never seen anything like it and the hoof pathology was profound. That was their words. So that actually spurred them on 
to think, well, hey, we've got to find out what's causing this. And by that time, because genetic research is moving so fast, in January of 2011, it was going to cost 250k American to do the genome-wide association study. By August of 2011, it had dropped down to $250 a pony. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So... Davis came back and they said, hey guys, we can't do it for nothing, but if you can raise some money, we'll do it. We'll go dollar for dollar. And so that's when we started thinking about using the social media thing. Mm -hmm. So by this stage, we're, this is about November, uh, no it wasn't, it was October the 13th because I fell over and broke my leg. There you go. And that was a story in itself because I was taking a shortcut back to the car park at Massey Uni because they have parking Nazis that, you know, do things like clamp you and it costs you mega bucks. So I, I took a shortcut down a bank and it had been very wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went and crashed at the bottom. Oh, gee. Yep. Well, it was some so, funny in hindsight. So you were bedridden, is that what you're saying? And well, then... I wasn't bedridden. I wasn't quite bedridden, but mm. I was certainly immobilised because mm. I had my leg in a cast. So I was stuck at home, and so that's when the, the whole blog and the Facebook thing took off because I had the time to do it. Yep, yep. And it was through both the blog and the Facebook page, which basically referred people to the blog, that we started doing the fundraising. And Davis actually set it up so people could do it online. Yes. And I have no idea who gave what where or anything. All Mm. I know is that within a week, they had enough money to start the first part of the research. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. So you were using social media to raise the money then for this research. Certainly something that couldn't happen, you know, going back a few years. So, yeah, I suppose the the Connemara breed is probably thankful that you did fall and break your leg. (laughs) (laughs) Had your time, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason, don't they? Well, this is right. And, I mean, the thing is that everything just like we ping, ping, ping that Mm. whole year, everything just sort of fell into line. The really funny part of it is that the assignment that I had done, you know, that turned real, Yep. I got a really lousy mark for. Oh, isn't that funny? <laughs> because, you see, what happened was I started putting into it what was happening yeah. and didn't follow the instructions mm, for the assignment, mm, which mm. was just do a research proposal. Yep. That was all they wanted, but yep. they got what was happening, <laughs> which was quite funny. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can see that I, I really did think it was quite funny in hindsight, but that's beside the point, yeah. All right, look, a question that I didn't ask you earlier was for someone, you know, because you've worked in the horse industry and you're talking about, you know, I would just say pony pony slave. Or what did you call yourself? I was a pony slave. Pony yep. slave, yeah. And there's lots of words for it. But people that start off as pony slaves but then go on to get a career. You know, now careers in the horse industry can be professional rider, professional coach. You can go off to lots and lots of different areas. Okay, and you can travel the world. You do graduate from being a pony slave, but do you think it requires the dedication that you had as a pony slave to actually start in the horse industry? What do you think the core skills are or the character traits that you need to have a career in the horse industry? You've got to have a 
good sense of responsibility. I mean, I was brought up that the animals, even the cat that we had when I was a kid, animals always got attended to before you attended to yourself. Yep. There's got to be an empathy. You've got to actually like horses. I get the feeling or the impression that there are a lot of people, they love their horses until they get on them and then they turn into nasty people. And then, of course, you've got the whole thing of, of the situation where they're only seen as money, which it's normal in the racing industry. Otherwise, people wouldn't have them, but yeah. So we're talking about professionals in the horse industry see the money? Sorry, I've lost me a bit. Oh, no, no, I, I, dig- I digress. Racing, you've got to put racing to one side. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what code you're talking about. They're not the same as what I would call the equestrian side yes. of things. Yep, okay. Right. No, I understand that. Yep. yep. There's another little saying, you know, how do you make a small fortune out of breeding horses, for instance? Well, you start off with a large fortune. Yes, I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah. And seriously, I'm find it incredibly hard to figure out how professional horse people actually manage to make a living yeah in this country at least you know and for the top people that ride for you know ride for owners i couldn't do it mm. i'm not a good enough rider anyway that's beside but i couldn't do it because the horse would come first rather than the owners and i could imagine that would go down like a lead balloon no, I think it depends on the owners. I think that there's, you know, quite a few good owners around that um, mm. that do like their horses and are quite prepared for the trainers of the horses to be making the uh, decisions there. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, I feel the same way about ponies. I get mm. a bigger, I get a, a heap of a thrill when a pony that I've been responsible for go, is out in the world doing really, really well. Mm, mm. You know, I, I get more more of a buzz out of that now than I would from trying to do it myself. <laughs> what do you think is the best thing about working with horses? The horses. Yep. <laughs> I suppose that explains it. It's actually having the company of the horses. Is that what you mean, the company, the communication? Yeah, and right down to the smell of them. Mm-hmm. It's just something that's in me. Yep. That's the only thing I can put it. To digress just a little bit, when I was working at Massey at the vet school, one of the jobs that I did was actually teaching the um, vet students and the vet nursing students large animal handling skills. Mm-hmm. And I would say probably 80% of them coming through now are townies. They've got no idea about large animals at all. So you have to teach them, if nothing else, how to keep themselves and the people that are working with them safe. Mm. And it was absolutely amazing. And I saw it more than once where you had these absolute towny people that have not been exposed to large animals in any shape or form. They had that inherent ability to read them. Mm -hmm. So moving them through yards or moving around them, they didn't even know they had the skill. You can't teach that. If someone doesn't have that ability to, to read the body language, to know where to place yourself if you're moving stop through a yard and keeping them safe and keeping other people safe, you can't teach it. It's either you've got it or you haven't got it. Do you think it can be improved with education? Yes, because you can have people that have that inherent skill 
But if they don't want to apply it, they're actually worse than someone who has no skill at all, who takes the time to learn. Mm-hmm. But that's just my own personal feeling. I mean, when it comes to getting a skill, especially a motor skill of any sort, it's practice that achieves it, not any inherent ability. Yep, yep, yep. But the inherent ability to actually read the body language of a horse mm-hmm. is going to put someone further ahead if they also do the practice to get the motor skills. Yes. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. So talking about complementary education, I suppose, have you got a book that you could recommend to our listeners that would complement their training, whether it's to do with their knowledge of hoof wall separation disease or generally with horses? What's one that you'd recommend? Um, well, there's nothing out there on hoof wall. Mm-hmm. So, um, you should say I, yet. That's yet. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> yet. Um, the important thing with horses is actually being able to understand how they learn. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at learning theory and Dr. Andrew McLean, who's an Aussie, mm-hmm. which is you know nearly as good as being a New Zealander, mm-hmm. he has a number of excellent books out, mm-hmm. any one of which I would recommend people to read. Okay, so we'll put him down as your recommended author then. Yeah. Yep, okay. So, Sheila, what are you looking forward to now? What does your future hold? Well, I've got two projects on the go at the moment, one of which is, uh, shall we say, commercially sensitive, so I won't go any further with that. And the other one is to do with trying to get Connemara breeders from right around the world to get, get them to actually start thinking about genetics because the gene pool for the Connemara pony is contracting at a very great rate. So. And a lot of it goes back to politics, I'm afraid. So what I've done is I've actually started a page on the, on Facebook called the Economara Pony Genetics Discussion Group. And it's a thing for people. We, we want to encourage stallion owners to get their stallions frozen for AI. Mm-hmm. Of course, for Australia and New Zealand, we've got the most strict biosecurity in the world and the cost of getting stallions frozen for to come down here is extra on what normal charges would be. Yes. So there's a group of us that are looking at our idea is to, to look around and find a cult that suits the what we want, basically buy it, leave it in the country of origin, mm-hmm. get it collected and then either sell it on or geld it or whatever. But it wouldn't be coming out to Australia or New Zealand, not at 30,000K just to get it here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can buy and get an import an awful lot of semen for 30,000K. Yes, okay. So it's trying to get people to work together because up until now everyone's been off you know, paddling their own little walker in a different direction and I'm trying to line people up so we're at least heading in the general same general direction general direction of a common goal and the goal of the group 
yeah, which yeah. is good. Yeah, good. Yeah. All right then. So, just to do with your philosophy with horses, have you got a, a general philosophy you'd like to tell us about? Basically, when it all goes wrong, look to yourself. Okay, that's probably a good one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, not just to do with breeding Connemara ponies, but I think it's just a good standard one and particularly a good riding and training one. Yeah. 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 Sheila, so we've got the Facebook group, the Connemara Ponies Genetic Discussion Group, but how else can people contact you? Well, they'll find me there anyway because I'm an admin, but we've also got the Hoofwall Separation Facebook page. Now, the thing is that on Facebook, it's called HWSS because until we actually had the, the genetic cause, we couldn't call it a disease. We had to call it hoofwall separation syndrome. Mm. But Facebook wouldn't let us change the name, <laughs> okay, because Facebook does these things. So if people want to find out more about it, then it's HWSS. Okay, okay. Yeah. And also, too, those details we'll put on your page at horsechats.com slash Sheila Ramsey or else just um, just search, go to horsechats.com and search for Sheila. All right, Sheila, uh, yeah, I think your, your project that is under wraps at the moment, it'd be good to get you back once that's not under wraps and talk to you about that. And, yeah, I think it's been good talking to you today, even though it's been a little bit off probably what most of our listeners, you know, are doing with their horses. I'm sure that there's going to be some that have got Connemara's got an interest in this hoof wall separation disease. And if any other breeds do come across it, it's probably a good idea or anything that's a bit unusual, maybe get the test or contact you about the test to see if it is it is coming. It's only, as far as you know, it's only in Connemara's, but there's a possibility that it could be in other breeds as well. Uh, not at this stage because the research actually looked at a lot of other breeds. Dr. Banish at UC Davis is sure that there are other similar hoof conditions in other breeds, but the Connemara test is specifically for one particular mutation on chromosome 8. But there's a probability that these other similar type looking hoof issues that people are reporting that are giving a negative test to the Connemara test Mm. are related. Mm -hmm. But until such time as the breeds involved actually want to do what we did, yep. So they've got they've got a pedigree map for a start, mm. and then front up with money. Mm-hmm. They can't really go any further. Yep. So they need to they need to do some pedigree mapping. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, they have to accept that there could be an issue. Yep. That's number one, right? Then they've got to find their affected cases and pedigree map them. Okay. Yep. And once they've got that sort of information coming through, then they've got to go to UC Davis or somewhere mm-hmm. with their proposal and some money. <laughs> okay. And that's the money side that they would have to use social media for. Mm-hmm. It's crowdfunding. Okay. Basically, yeah. All right, then. Well, all those details will be on the contact page there. And Sheila, we look forward to catching up with you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. 
If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.